Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Here today to practice mindfulness together and to improve our practice of mindfulness through discussion and instruction and communal engagement. So we become engaged in the practice during this session. We don't just take in the information and go home with knowledge. During this session, we undertake the practice of mindfulness, the practice of experiencing reality just as experiences, rather than judging or meddling, trying to change or fix, control, without all of that. Just simply studying, familiarizing ourselves with reality and reminding ourselves of the nature of reality. So your reality is in front of you. Reality isn't some mysterious thing, it's pretty simple. And our problem isn't that reality is hard to find. Our problem is that we find too much in reality that isn't real. We make too much out of reality. We perceive reality as much that it isn't. So we come here today to simplify. We have no video. There's no person here. No talking head. Even the words on the screen aren't important. Even the words I'm saying aren't the most important. They're merely a signpost or a warning light, if you will, that flashes on when you hear the sound of my voice and reminds you. It alarms you, it alerts you to something. Reminds you of the task in front of you. So we take up this task together, this task of mindfulness, of presence, of clarity, of wisdom, of understanding, of familiarity with reality. So today's talk is about non-self. This morning in our 
Dhamma study group, it came up, and it's come up recently with a couple of meditators, and to be honest, it's a perennial question. Someone mentioned this morning that the teaching of non-self is something that the Buddha wouldn't discuss with ordinary people, so that person's probably shaking their head as they hear this or watch it if they ever watch it. And say, oh no, he didn't. And I did. I'm taking it up live on the internet, a topic that's really considered to be fairly advanced, I think is a good word for it. But we're in a position, and, and I wouldn't honestly agree per se that it should be considered as advanced. It's just, it's somewhat philosophical in a sense. And the situation we have today is there's so much information available that Buddhism ends up being becoming just another topic for philosoph philosophical debate or discussion and interpretation. And, and many things about the Buddha's teaching are really ill-suited to be discussed or considered as philosophical topics. Buddha's teaching as a whole isn't very philosophical per se. I mean, whatever the word philosophical means, it's not so much intellectual is the point. And Buddhism becomes a topic of intellectual discussion. And so ideas like non-self, because they hit upon many of our philosophical or intellectual or whatever, spiritual beliefs and ideas and theories and philosophies. That it gets taken up as a, a thing, a, a concept, and becomes, funnily enough, becomes sort of the antithesis of what it actually means. It becomes a self, it becomes an entity. Non-self becomes this thing that meditators especially have a hard time wrapping their heads around. This thing called non-self. And I mean more uh, exactly, this idea that there is no self. This is an idea, it's a theory, it's a claim that there is no self. And as I said, it, it, it kind of contradicts itself because, it contradicts itself, it contradicts the whole teaching on non-self because The teaching of non-self isn't that there is no self. When you say there is no self, or if, suppose you ask the question, is there a self? It's kind of like begging the question, if you know what that means. Begging the question is a logical fallacy. 
where your premise already contains the conclusion, and that's how you come to your conclusion. You're begging the question. You're you're already. It's just a. It doesn't even mean what it sounds like. It means it means you're you're supporting your conclusion with your premise. So it doesn't work as an argument. This isn't an argument, but the question is already impossible to answer properly because it already assumes a framework within which selves exist. Non-self is a teaching that that... The non-self teaching is literally or, or is specifically that that framework of things existing is wrong. So when you say, is there a self, you're already buying into the framework that non-self uh, denies. That non-self is... is that non-self uh, forbids no, that the, the experience of non-self sees that to be illusory. So the question of whether there is or isn't a self, even the statement there is no self, is misleading. It's misleading not because there is a self. It's misleading because it doesn't even make sense. Things existing is only a way of looking at the world. And, and it's one we're so used to, we're so comfortable with, so steeped in, brainwashed by, you might say. We look at the world and, and as scientists we want to know what exists. And it's kind of funny as a Buddhist to watch, to, to, to read about quantum physics, not that I am by any means knowledgeable too much about quantum physics, but I'm, I'm amateurly knowledgeable enough to see how humorous it is, to see how it's kind of confounded this search for what exists. Because it's really hard to say what exists. Obviously, because things existing is an illusion. Things existing is an illusion. It's like if you point at a river, point at the river and you say, what is, what is that made of? What is that? And someone who knows would say, well, actually that thing you pointed at has already gone down the river. It's no longer there anymore. It's kind of like that. Things existing is, is just an illusion. And that, quite simply, is the characteristic of non-self. Don't go looking for an understanding of non-self or somehow that you're going to see this thing called non-self or understand it even. Because you've made it into an entity, some some thing that you're going to see. We want to understand things as not-self, as having the absence of self. And what does that even mean? Because if they're things, they already have selfness. So what this actually means is seeing that reality 
possesses the characteristic of, or, or you might say doesn't possess the characteristic of selves, of entities. And this, this isn't just theoretical or philosophical. This uh, hits upon so much of how we live our lives and how we create problems for ourselves. Because creating selves, creating entities, is the core of, of creating problems. Problems aren't things that exist. They are concepts that we create out of our experiences. There are experiences, and sometimes there are patterns of experiences, and there are reactions and patterns of reactions, and all of those combine together in very complex ways to create things we call problems. But those things don't exist. They are conceived of. I have a, a, an addiction problem, or I have an anger problem. I have depression. I am a... Um, I am a schizophrenic, even. Creating entities, creating identity, which hides the reality that's behind all of that. You see, when you're focused on the entities, these entities that don't exist, that we've reified, that we've, we, we continually affirm and uh, create and validate as existing, including the self. I mean, at the core is our own soul, our own being that we create. Not that we have no self or we do have a self, that our perceptions, our perspective on the world is, is, is about constantly creating in our minds this concept that I exist and that I have this quality or that quality, right? This imagining, this narrative that we create about who we are, self-identity, how important it is for people. It's kind of disconcerting as a Buddhist to see how important self-identity has become and this, there's this um, movement surrounding gender and, and people who are transgender and so on and, and I absolutely support someone who is transgender there's no question there but the fixation on gender on both sides by the people who are angry and hateful and hurtful towards people who want to be recognized as a certain gender, but also by those who make such a big deal over their perceived gender. Someone, I think to some extent we all experience this, this, this uh, identifying with a certain gender, sometimes not the gender that uh, is associated with our biological sex. People who are born into a male body feeling like they're more female, born into a female body feeling they're more male, and some who, who don't identify with either and want to be uh, identified as something non-binary and so on. So 
Absolutely, this is, I think, recognized and understandable. It's, it's certainly understandable from a Buddhist perspective, especially because we've probably been all of these things in the past. Well, we've been male and female, and we've been beings that probably didn't have gender or didn't identify gendered, gendered in that way. Gender being something to do with sexual reproduction, mostly. And so confusion on that regard is not surprising by any means, but the need for it, the need for self-identity and the clinging to self. Again, I want to reiterate, people who identify as transgender or cisgender or any gender or no gender, I have, I have my entire support and I would never try to vilify or invalidate their experience or their identification but like all identification it has to be put in perspective like the identification of those who feel threatened or angered by that or hateful because of that or bigoted because of it or just evil because of it it all has to do with a sense of self and reification and this is what leads to evil it's what leads to suffering And it's not necessary. It has no basis in reality. In reality, there's only experiences. And I always go back to Descartes. I usually say good things about him, but I want to be clear that I don't think there's much good you can say about Descartes, except how brilliant it was for him to start where he started. Descartes was this French philosopher who came up with that famous saying, Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am, or I conceive, or no, I cognize, therefore I am. And so where he started was that cognition. He realized, what the Buddha, of course, realized, is that there only is cognition at, at the base. Everything else is unverifiable. So whether or not we have a self and and whether or not anything exists is irrelevant. The existence of anything is irrelevant because it can never be known. Bertrand Russell had this famous example of a teapot. He said, I don't believe in God. I mean, I'm paraphrasing or, or mangling terribly probably, but basically that he didn't believe in God because there was as much reason to believe in God as there was to believe in a teapot orbiting the sun between the earth and Mars or something. So it's called Russell's teapot. It's not that he knows there is no God, it's that, like the teapot, he has no reason to believe in a God. There's no, there being no evidence, and that really is how science, modern science looks at things. They believe in things that there is evidence for. But that ignores the fact that it's still belief. It's just reasoned, reasonable belief. And there, there's no reason not to believe in atoms and cells and chemical reactions and physics and so on, and gravity and so on. Of course, it'd be ridiculous not to believe in these things. But we have to recognize that there is a limitation to our belief. And the limitation isn't really visible in terms of science because you don't need to 
be sure. No one, it would be ridiculous to say, oh no, gravity doesn't exist. I'm going to jump out this window and show you. It would be absurd, of course. The gravity does exist. It's real. But when it comes to meditation, something interesting happens. Our conception of things like gravity or anything, our, our conception of self, the activity that goes into that is an abstraction. It is a complexity. And so it removes us from what we're actually experiencing. As we conceive of whatever it is we're experiencing in this, as being this self or that self, this thing, that thing, as being things, we remove ourselves from reality and we get ourselves into trouble as a result because those things take on qualities and we give them qualities. We, we uh, identify them as being this or that, good, bad, me, mine, right? This is where identity, possession, uh, and bias and, and prejudice comes come in. You can't be prejudiced if you're observing things as they are, right? You, you, you just you judge without pre. There's no prejudging. The prejudging has to do with the recognition that ah, this is that thing that I conceive of. And belief doesn't help us. So belief doesn't help us get break through to reality. And so the only firm and stable. Um, foothold on which we can gain a appreciation and understanding of reality is, is experience. And this is what Descartes saw. He said, the rest of this, I could, be, I could be being tricked. God could be just tricking me. But there's one thing I can't be tricked about. I mean, it's so profound. And it goes beyond what science is able to appreciate generally generally speaking i mean it's this this limitation of say the scientific method which is a great thing i mean it's incredibly useful and it's helped us do great things but many positive things many negative things as well uh, but but certainly it's been a boon to us the scientific method no question but the limitation of it is that it relies on belief in things we can't actually ever know. I mean, it's not a, as I said, it's not a, an important limitation. But in meditation, it's an important distinction. It's categorically different from experience. On a meditative level, you can't ever understand what you're doing to yourself to cause yourself suffering if you're not completely in tune with what's actually happening, right? The actual mechanics of the system. And that mechanic is limited to experience, to direct experience. And so there are six things that we can actually know with absolute certainty. Absolute certainty, which is a surprise, I think, to, to many people. That you can know something with absolute certainty. Six things. You can know seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. I mean, you can know experience, basically. When you see something, you don't know what you're seeing. That thing that you're seeing, is it real? You don't know. But are you seeing? Is there an experience of seeing? 
No one can trick you into thinking you're seeing. What, 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 what could it possibly be? How could it possibly be that this could be something other than seeing when you're seeing, right? It's a direct, it's unadulterated, it's unfiltered. And so this is where our meditation begins, and this is a part of the shift that comes about, and this is where non-self comes in. Non-self comes in as a description of the shift that we undertake in our perception, as we shift away from seeing reality as things, as entities, including our own self. Instead of our foot walking, our leg walking, our body walking, we feel an experience of walking, a physical experience, and that experience arises and ceases. The mental awareness of that experience arises and ceases. And as we see that, the three things, the three parts of the shift are that we shift away from seeing reality as made up of st stable entities, like a river that exists. Instead of seeing the river existing, we start to see the particles of water moving constantly. I mean, actually more precisely in this case, as experiences arising out of nothing and ceasing into nothing. The experience wasn't there a moment ago, and now it's here. Oh, and now it's gone. So this idea of stability or permanence and thereby of predictability goes away. Satisfaction, we move away from seeking out satisfaction because in satisfaction there's a need for stability, there's a need for possessiveness. You have to be able to possess and keep something for it to satisfy you. And we look for things that are going to make us happy but since they're constants, the things are actually just experiences that are arising and ceasing. There is no satisfaction. I mean, there's no good that comes from clinging to uh, our experience, and there's a lot of suffering that comes, and we see the suffering that comes from clinging with expectations of stability. And the third part is non-self. We see that Rather than selves, entities, things, there's only experiences. And they are not uh, a part of some mm, being that does and, and experiences things. They are just moments. Now, they are uh, connected through causal chains of cause and effect. But they are not selves, they are not entities. And so when you see this, you start to lose a lot of this illusion about control and about entity, about who I am. I mean, there's so many aspects of self. I'm not going to go into all the many ways in which we conceive of self, and they're different. Sometimes it's who I am and it's identity. Sometimes it's control and, and being able to uh, manipulate and, and, and fix and and uh, a 
achieve and accomplish things, become something. And all of that starts to break down, and our attitude changes as a result of our perception. As we look at things as being impermanent, suffering, and non-self, I mean, just as being experiences that arise and cease, we, we lose our sense of identity, a need for any kind of identity. Who I am becomes less important. And what I do also becomes less important in the sense of having to fix and control and be in charge, because we see that that's just fraught with suffering and stress due to the unpredictable nature of things, the chaotic and transitory nature of things. We're not the only influence on the universe, and so we lose that sense. It's not about, do I exist? Do I not exist? It's nothing like that. There's no answers for those questions. Those are just philosophical questions based on a framework that is just conventional, that doesn't even speak to the nature of reality, which is very, very hard to see. It's right here in front of us, but it's clouded and covered up so much by our conceptions that it's very hard to see what's right in front of us. But once we do, once we start to see, it's quite a shock and it's quite a surprise and we are, are jolted into a new way of looking at the world. That is fortunately free from all the stress and suffering of this illusory world of identity that we're weighed down and bogged down by who we are and what we do and so on and so on. Our problems. So, a little bit about non-self. I don't expect that to be the be-all, end-all answer to the topic, but but more to be a, a, a means of helping people shift their obsession, perhaps sometimes, or their, their attention, their concern, or their confusion about non-self, to understand it's not about a thing that you must understand, it's about a shift in perception. It's quite simple, actually. Not easy, but simple. And surprising when you do see it, because it touches upon so much of what we think is real. That's all. You don't have to... Non-self isn't something you should really worry about. Something you'll start to experience. And you won't even realize it because it's not anything you're familiar with. You'll be totally surprised and upset, unsettled by it, by the three characteristics. That's what they do, as they create a radical shift in the way you look at the world, as you see it more clearly. So that's the Dhamma for today. Now on to questions. If there are no questions, or if you don't have any questions personally, you should just close your eyes. And we'll meditate together. Recovering from losing someone, the practice is extremely painful. Is it wrong to go to Samatha at this time? My suffering is unbelievable, and I'm desperate for respite. I want to let go. Any advice?
I don't think it is really right to go to Samatha. Samatha really requires a, a sense of peace. When you're in tragedies, vipassana will help you a lot more. So, I mean, mindfulness will help you a lot more. Uh, it doesn't seem like it. But the but let's cover some things. First, the practice isn't extremely painful. And perceiving it in that way is not going to help you, of course, because you're reifying this thing called the practice that is painful. So the process, the important part of the process is to identify what is actually painful. And in the end, the only thing that's painful is your reaction to the things that you think are painful. So what, what you would perceive as painful is the memories and the perceptions of having lost someone. And those perceptions are real, but they are not painful. What's painful is the fact that you don't like them, or they evoke a reaction in you. And so seeing that, and if you can ferret out that mechanism or that causal chain, what's actually happening, Simply by addressing it, by bringing yourself closer to what's actually happening, using the mantra to remind yourself what's actually happening with your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions, noting all of them. You really can see that it's not as problematic as it seems just experiences my suffering is unbelievable so be careful about self of course it's not my suffering and it's certainly not unbelievable you'd be surprised what I might believe um, but it is suffering but when you cling to it as being mine it can be problematic um, and, and also when you see it as being too much um, you being desperate for respite. I mean, I don't mean to pick apart your words, but there are things here that you have that are, you're probably experiencing. Desperation is just another experience. Craving for respite is just another reaction. Wanting to let go is still just wanting, and it doesn't help you let go. Sort of the opposite of letting go. Because letting go is not that language is problematic because wanting to let go means wanting to get rid of. It has nothing to do with letting go. Letting go means letting come. When you let go of something, it might come and hit you in the face. Right? You holding on to it might be the only thing stopping it from hitting you in the face. Oh, it doesn't make it go away just because you let go of it. That's important to understand. Letting go of things is about letting them do what they will. When you let go, you might get hurt. But what I mean by that really is that your physical reality might not be what you want it to be. The results that you want might not come, but the thing about letting go is that you've let go and you're not disturbed by your physical reality, your external reality. I don't know if you're doing or have done our, our intensive or our, our at-home course, but might want to read our booklet and 
take the at-home course. Uh, I'd be a little bit embarrassed if you'd already taken the at-home course because I'd want to say, if you've done the at-home course, it shouldn't. You should be able to deal with this, but it can very well be that someone, of course, has done our very, very basic introduction to meditation and can still be very much overwhelmed by suffering. But you probably know a lot of the things I'm saying already in that case. And I guess I would just say to to look at your own, look at the words that you've written and try and ferret out from them, not me nitpicking from the outside, but you ferreting out what you actually mean and what is actually the experience that is causing you to describe it in this way because this description isn't the actual experience i'm not saying you're you're deluded or anything like that or you're wrong or anything but words are limiting and actually figuring out what it is that is being experienced moment by moment will help you and catching it and and noting it reminding yourself it is what it is will help you to break it apart and see that there is no problem there's only experiences. So hopefully that helps at least a bit. I wish you all the best. Meditation has uncovered hostility that I have for people who used to associate with. I feel like I also have allowed it to fester. How can I rein it back aside from being mindful? So here again, trying to rein it back is not mindfulness. So mindfulness is not going to help you rein it back. Mindfulness is going to help you see it clearly and let go of it, which means sometimes letting it come. But it also means not feeding it. So because you're not feeding it, come as it may, it won't. you won't react to it, you won't engage with it, you won't act based on it, and it will eventually just fade out. But our, our old habits are not just going to go away just because we're mindful. So your expectation that mindfulness is going to do that and that it's inadequate in doing that is probably a part of the problem because it's not going to do that. Mindfulness is not going to make you stop being angry, not, not directly. But mindfulness is, as I said, going to help you to see anger as just anger and all the things that you get angry about just as what they are. And as a result, anger will slowly work its way out itself. But you have to take on the attitude of allowing it to come allowing whatever's going to come to come and just taking it as it is and reminding yourself it is what it is. I read that all taints are removed for the one who knows and sees. What should I see exactly to understand non-self? Is it pain? Again, don't try to understand non-self. That's uh, very misleading because generally we think of that as some kind of intellectual understanding and that's not it. In fact, you don't understand non-self. You see for yourself. You see for yourself. You see for yourself, and that's a very conventional usage of the term self, you see for yourself that reality isn't made up of selves. You see for yourself that reality is made up of moments of experience and that it, the qualities of those experiences don't include selfness in any form. You just see that. I mean, you'll start to see that. What should you see? You should just see reality arising and ceasing and you should see it clearly. 
So it's not enough just to look. The usage of the mantra is a means of, clear, of clearing up the crooked, per, um, distorted perception we have of things. It's about uh, straightening our perception. Straightening in the sense of to being, act, being actually based on what's actually there rather than a, a distortion of what we want or what we our bias, what our biases tell us is there. We need that straightening out that meditation gives us. I have been meditating myself in a room for four years. I have struggled for two years, sometimes seeing shadows, hearing sounds. Later, I realized it's normal in practice. Am I on the right track? Well, there's no real normal in practice. Um, in fact, you might experience things that no one else has experienced. Um, unlikely, of course, but nonetheless, rare or common or normal or abnormal, just words. Your experiences are going to be chaotic and unpredictable, and that unpredictable nature of reality is an important part of the discovery process. Being thrown off guard and opening up, broadening your horizons to, to the possible so that you're no longer taken off guard because you've come to understand that you can't predict what's going to happen, and it's not important that you do. It's not important that you try to anticipate what's going to happen or try to control what's going to happen or anything like that. Anytime you try to control or have expectations or so on, you're just going to suffer. But there is nothing problematic about seeing shadows. Shadows is just seeing. So seeing is just an experience and it should be understood as seeing. Hearing as well should be understood as hearing, whether it's something that the ear picks up or something that the mind or brain picks up. can't say whether you're on the right track but certainly there's no there's nothing wrong with your practice just because you're hearing or seeing things it depends how you react to them whether you make something out of them because if you make something of them then you're probably on a, a problematic track certainly not on a mindful track if you make anything of them When there are lots of objects, for example, pain, thoughts, disliking, hearing, etc., all coming rapidly, can I note scattered? I've designated distracted for when I'm thinking a lot. Not sure if that's right. Yeah, scattered, distracted is all fine. You can say overwhelmed sometimes if it feels overwhelmed. Did the Buddha specify that there is no self? I wonder if I wonder if I really got my point across because the whole point, I guess it's really hard to wrap your head around if you were listening to what I was saying earlier. Saying that there is no self is a problematic statement because it relies on a framework of selves, 
I guess that's really hard to understand if you haven't done meditation. I mean, it's hard to teach. It's hard to explain as someone who has done meditation, right? Someone who does engage with mindfulness. Because for us, it's not so hard to understand. Um, I, I, the, the, we, we, we undertake a shift in our perception. So I guess that's what I would say is, rather than trying to understand these things intellectually, just practice. You don't have to worry. And I guess a part of it is we worry about um, the things we're going to see and what is it we might see. And are we going to see? There's a lot of concern that we might not see the things we need to see. All you're going to see is what's really there, so you don't have to worry. You just have to cultivate the skill to see. And what's there is not a big sign or a... a a big monster that, with a sign on its chest saying, Hi, I'm non-self. What you're going to see is things arising and ceasing. I mean, it's, it's, these things are not hidden, they're already there. You're just going to start to conceive of them that way. Ah, yes, this thing that has arisen has now ceased. Ah, yes, this one too. Until you start to get it and you start to say, Yeah, this idea that I had of things being stable, satisfying, controllable, me, mine, was all just an illusion. The Buddha taught four things, suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. All you need to know about that is that nothing is worth clinging to, and nothing being worth clinging to is because it uh, doesn't contain stability, satisfying, or control. It doesn't have the characteristic of stability, satisfaction, or control. Herself. Would you say that being a narcissist, and therefore void of positive emotion, one still could get benefits from your noting technique? First of all, there's no such thing as a narcissist. It's not a thing that exists. So this is an example of, of reification you create this idea of you or someone else being a narcissist. It's not, it's not accurate. So the, the, the things that get in the way of meditation are, of course, unwholesome mind states. If someone is engaged heavily in unwholesome mind states, it's going to be very hard for them to meditate. So it's not that meditation is going to not work for, it's not going to be useful for them. It's just that they might be very unable to do it. Most likely, if they've done a lot of evil things that people we call narcissists tend to do, then uh, very hard for them to get their mind across, mind around wholesome things like mindfulness. It's very hard for people who don't have that problem in the first place. So people who are rightfully labeled as being narcissistic, as a as an habitual quality of their minds they're not going to have an easy time of it they're not going to be likely to be interested in it in the first place my first meditation left me feeling sick and nauseated the rest of the day after several more meditations, the sick feeling is dying down quite a bit. 
Was this normal, or was I doing something wrong? Again, something being normal is not of any interest or consequence. It does, there's not really an answer to that question. Meditation isn't about feeling normal or experiencing normal things. There's no, um, there's no normal in regards to what you experience. What we can say is normal, and this is something that I do have to make clear, that there is a normal, and the normal is how you'll start reacting to things. You see, that's the normal that we're looking for. What's normal is you should start reacting less to things like nausea. It's not normal whether you experience nausea or not. It's normal that as you practice, you start to experience it more objectively because you'll say nauseous or feeling. If you dislike it, you'd say disliking and so on. If you like the fact that you're no longer nauseous, you'd say liking. So you're no longer elated or deflated by your experiences. And likewise, uh, any, no experience is going to tell you whether you're doing anything wrong. Whether you feel more pain, less pain, more nausea, less nausea, it's not going to tell you that you're doing something right or wrong. Now, to some extent, there's going to be temporary relief or arising of, of unpleasant, undesirable states. Because of meditation, it can go both ways from time to time. It's, a, it's quite unpredictable. But none of that is of any consequence. And there's no nothing you can say about it being normal. It's just experience. It's highly unpredictable. Sometimes there is no inclination to label an ongoing phenomenon. There is just the knowledge of it as either pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, physical or mental feeling. Is the naming well, always hmm. necessary? Sorry. Well, it really is like asking the question, going up to your boss and saying, look, sometimes there is no inclination to do my work. There's just the knowledge of the work that needs to be done and the things that I have to do my work on as they are, is the work always necessary? Basically the same sort of question. Because you're not doing the work from, from our perspective. The, the work is not just knowledge of things. It's the cultivation of clarity in regards to those things. Because knowledge of things is something that we have already. But the clarity is, is what we're aiming for in the meditation. And the use of a mantra has always, since ancient times, since before the Buddha, allowed us as a tool to gain that clarity, that focus. It's just that the Buddha applied that focus to actual experience. That's not the only thing he did, but that's very much a part of the core of what he did. Why do I feel pressure in the forehead when I meditate? So, the, I mean, this isn't a bad question to ask, but it is a bad question to ask. Like, it's good to ask your meditation teacher this question, but only because they can help you. I mean, I can help you understand why um, it's not really useful to ask that question. It's because you have to direct your attention in a different way 
instead of asking why do you feel pressure in your forehead, the idea is to change your perspective so you no longer analyze things in terms of what they mean, because you're trying to find meaning in 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 the feeling of pressure, and there's no meaning behind it. There's no value in knowing why you feel pressure in your forehead because there's no meaning behind it. There's only the experience of pressure in the forehead. So the change you have to make when asking this question is to just experience the pressure as pressure without reacting to it in all the ways that make you want to ask what's wrong that's making this happen, worrying about it, being afraid of it, disliking it or liking it, curious about it, maybe thinking it's going to lead you to enlightenment. It's not. It's just pressure. It arises and it ceases. It's impermanent suffering and non-self. Does being able to relax during meditation mean I am not meditating? I have heard that you only feel relaxed during a bad meditation session. Is there any truth to this? No, that doesn't sound true at all. You can feel quite relaxed during meditation. Now, you can also feel quite relaxed during a bad meditation. So, um, there's no correlation there. There's a small correlation in the sense that mindfulness does sometimes relax you. It, it, it shouldn't be relied upon as relaxing because that's not what it's aiming at. It's aiming at understanding and seeing clearly. Now, the thing about understanding and seeing clearly is that when you have an objective, clear understanding, so much of the stress that we have fades away. Some of it immediately, some of it gradually. It's complicated, but does overall fade away. And so you should feel more relaxed in your life and in everything you do as a result of mindfulness. So don't be discouraged if you feel relaxed, absolutely. If you like the relaxation, well, the liking can be, of course, problematic. If you want to feel relaxed. Being able to relax might be a bit of a red flag because you're maybe purposefully aiming for relaxation and that can be a problem. Yes, there are ways you can go about relaxing yourself, but that's not mindfulness. So try and be careful that you're not doing that purposefully. Or you're not using the meditation somehow to, as a mantra to relax you. It's not a mantra to relax you, it's a mantra to see clearly, that's all see it in that way, then you won't be attached to any kind of relaxation or any kind of stress. You'll just be able to see it as it is. I feel myself hitting a plateau in my practice. I find it hard to get past the 30-minute mark. Should I try to push through it, even if the quality is worse, or try to do multiple shorter sessions? Well, 30 minutes is great. Unless you're doing intensive practice, I wouldn't be concerned about going over 30 minutes. Try and do 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting. I don't know if that's what you mean or if you just mean 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting. Because I think over time you should be able to go beyond 15, 15, but don't push yourself. You'll get there naturally. And if you find yourself up to 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting per session, I wouldn't worry about going beyond that. Not if you're also working during the day. I mean, you can, of course, and if you're able to. Some people really are able to, but don't you know, feel proud that you're able to get that. Instead, if that's the case, then try to get to, yeah, twice a day, three times a day even. 
don't think about meditation as something you have to do for hours and hours continuously. The continuously is where you're mindful continuously, and you can do that outside of the training, outside of the formal sessions. If I note problems, as this problem that has nature to arise also has nature to cease, is that noting sufficient to remove disturbance of sensuality, disturbance of becoming, and disturbance of self? This is a complicated question. I would, I would want to sort of cast aside this question as being overly convoluted, I think. Not, I'm not criticizing you really for answering, asking it, but maybe to try to simplify your thinking. I mean, what is it you really want to know? Is noting sufficient to make me free from suffering? That's what you should be asking, because yes, it is. Not, I mean, it's not a one-step process, but basically, yes, noting is enough. And I don't know, understand about noting problems. The thing about saying that is that problems aren't a thing that exists. So you note experiences so that you don't see them as problems. Problems don't have the nature to arise. Problems are a concept. And they're boogeymen that don't arise and cease. They persist in our minds. I have a problem and it persists. But the reality is not anything persisting. So problems aren't a thing that you should note. I feel when I let my attention move freely, but still have the meditation object in my awareness, I get less strain in my forehead. Is this right practice? No. No, you're working to for for a, the removal of an experience and that's not what mindfulness is about if your practice is all about getting less strain in your forehead you're doing something wrong that's not what practice is about if you feel strain in your head you should note the strain in your head feeling feeling strain tense tense if you dislike it you should note that trying to find a way to practice that somehow fixes your problems is not mindfulness because your problems aren't problems they're just experiences that you should be mindful of what is the cause of this illusion or misinterpretation of self well, again as i tried to say i guess not i guess it's such a very hard topic that it's hard to really do justice to it but the the cause is our perception of of entities of things if you're asking what causes us to do that i would say it's complicated and i guess delusion really because if you're in a dark room you don't actually see what's there you just see vague outlines and so a chair might look like a, mo a monster or a shadow on the wall might look like a monster, but it just turns out to be a shadow on the wall that was flickering. Right? All we have are shadows on the wall, and it's like Socrates in that uh, cave. No, was it Socrates? or No, Aristotle maybe, I can't remember. Who was in the cave? Plato. Yeah, right, so Socrates, right? 
Plato's Plato. allegory of the cave. Yeah, but it's Socrates. Prisoners were the in voice, the cave. Through the voice of, so of Socrates, most likely, right? So sorry, Plato. Yeah, it's in Plato's book. Um, we just see flickering on the wall, and that's all we see. I, I'm not going by the way Plato said it, but basically the same idea that our perceptions are just flickering on the wall that we turn into things. And and it comes from recognition. Oh, this thing was, this flickering on the wall was like that flickering on. We notice patterns. And we have this, we've developed this ability to associate one experience with another and say it's the same as that experience. And so we give those 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 similarities names. But in the end, it's just the senses like flickering on the wall. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There are four more questions in the top tier. Do you have mm -hmm. time to answer? Of course, yes. Thank you. Sorry to ask a how do I question, but how do I not react? It seems so automatic. How can I not be disturbed by experience when the disturbance comes so immediately? Mm -hmm. Well, you don't, you don't try and... I mean, it, it becomes a, a matter of trying to stop things that have already happened because by the time you know you've, you've, by the time you think of stopping the reaction, it's more like, I should have stopped that, but I didn't, as you say, right? It already happened. So it's not actually about stopping reactions. That's not how you perceive it, how you approach the practice. You approach the practice by recognizing and reminding yourself. And that act of recognizing and reminding yourself, let's focus on the reminding aspect, reminding yourself this is this. So when you have pain, and you know there's pain, you, you don't worry about how you might react, you just say pain. When you feel upset about the pain, you don't worry about what that's going to lead to. You catch whatever you can when you can catch it, because that act of reminding yourself is a replacement for reaction. And so whenever you do that, you build up a new habit of experiencing objectively, which interferes with your ability to react slowly. It's going to fight with it. It's going to be conflicting with that, or, or, or competing, not conflicting necessarily, but competing for your time, right? So sometimes you react, sometimes you'll uh, see as it is, and eventually, through the practice of mindfulness, it becomes a habit, and it overwhelms the judgmental, the reactionary side. Basically, that's how it goes. It's not about stopping yourself from your reactions, it's about cultivating new habits. And, and it's not just simply the habit, it's also the perspective that you gain that encourages you in it. Because you start to see the stress and suffering that comes as you compare the two ways of experiencing and you become to come to appreciate mindfulness and appreciate the suffering that comes from reacting which disinclines you from it in the future is non-self fully realized at the sotapanna stage non-self is not a thing and sotapanna is not a thing so I'm not going to answer this directly because it's too much steeped in, I think, identities, things, concepts. Non-self is a quality of reality. 
It's not a thing that you're going to realize. It, it's a negative. You're going to realize that the self that you thought things had was just an illusion. You're going to realize that selfness, the, the, the quality of being under your control, of belonging to you, whatever it is, because it's different for every person and it's different at every moment. But all of those reactions and perceptions of things were all wrong. You're going to start to see how wrong they were. That's what non-self means, just like the other two. So get it out of your head that it's some kind of thing that you're going to realize. It's a negative, it's a, it's a lack, it's an absence that you're going to make you feel how foolish you were with all your ego and possessiveness and selfness. And not just about you, but about other things as well, like this exists and this thing is me, is mine, is itself, is a thing, is a person. And you start to see that, ah, those are just ideas, concepts. How do I practice being present if I find myself focusing my attention on my thoughts? I try to focus on my surroundings, but I always end up focusing more on my thoughts. Well, we just note thinking, or if you're thinking a lot, note distracted. It won't be always. Don't fall into the trap of thinking just because something is prevalent, it's always, because that's just an idea you get in your head that can actually interfere and discourage you. It's just, you can see that it's quite often. Try and be clear about that in your mind. It's just often, not always. Because that'll leave it open to noting other things as well. But when you're thinking, when you are thinking, not thinking or distracted, that's all. Don't try and fix it. I've been meditating for years based on your booklet, and I am interested in reading from the Pali Canon. Is there a specific text in which the practice is outlined, or is it mostly scattered? Well, it's mostly in the Satipatthana, Buddhist teachings on Satipatthana, so it's based on the Satipatthana Sutta. You can read a book called The Way of Mindfulness, which is just a translation of the Sutta and the commentaries on the Sutta, which might be interesting. Uh, but if you've been meditating based on my booklet for years, be aware that that booklet is just the very beginning. So if you're interested, you might think about taking our at-home course, if you haven't already. It has much more than it's in the booklet. Not, I mean, the basics are the same. Fundamentals are unchanged, but technique is increased or added to. Thank you for taking the extra time, Bhante. That's the end of the questions for today. Thank you. Thank you all for your help. Chris, Ulu, uh, Rahid is here. Yeah. Sadhu. Sadhu. Best, everyone.